Mark is about three quarters of the way through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. And we are in chapter 14. What is the most expensive thing you own? What is the most precious thing that you own? Pointing to your wife, that is a good sign. She's probably, hopefully, more precious than she is expensive, right? I don't know. For many of us, we would answer, uh, thanks, you know, we would answer our house, potentially. It might also be your biggest source of debt. So maybe your car. If you're a little younger, maybe your phone or your tablet or your laptop. Maybe your, your, uh, your paintball gun or your camera for photography. Something that really makes you tick, right? Something that you prize, that maybe you saved up for for a long time or you're still paying off. So what is, what is good and what is beautiful about that thing? I'm sure you can think of many things. Um, the text today answers this question, both asks and answers the question, what is good? What is beautiful? And so to review, right now we're in the middle of the Passion Week. We're two days before Christ's crucifixion. And Jesus has in the past, in the last week, he's entered into Jerusalem to fanfare. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. This is our coming king. This guy's our man. He enters into the temple in Jerusalem and clears out those who would take advantage of the poor, those who would desecrate the house of God and turn what should be a house of prayer into a den of robbers. He's duked it out with the Pharisees, not literally, uh, minus the whip that he fashioned in the temple. He used his words. He won in debate every time. They've been trying to get him in a corner. And they've asked him question after question to try to make him look bad in front of his followers and in front of the people so that he can, they can turn the tide of public opinion and get him out of here because they're jealous and they're afraid he's going he's gonna, to uh, stir up a rebellion against Rome and he's going to fail. They don't think he's got what it takes. So they're desperate to get him out. And yet, he's beat them in every single debate and in every single trap that they've laid. He's just resoundingly walloped them. And they've kind of retreated now, and Jesus has had some time in the last couple of chapters to do a little teaching of his own. What does it look like for me to go to the cross? What do the end times look like? What is going to come upon you after I die and am raised again? And so Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's two days away from the cross and he knows it. He is laser-focused on his coming suffering and death and resurrection. Everything that, that comes at him, God is bringing people into his life that are going to illustrate his death and resurrection for his disciples, that he's going to be able to turn around those interactions as a teaching opportunity to help his disciples and to help us, who will later read his words, understand what he's doing at the cross. We need to get a clear vision of Jesus, who he is, what he's doing in this last week what would you do if you only had two days left to live? Well, this is what Jesus chose to do. These are the stories you need to know about Jesus' last days. So if that doesn't, if that doesn't peak up your attention, I, I don't know what's going to. If you love Jesus, you're going to want to know dying days. You're going to want to know his dying words. What is on his heart? What does his heart break for, rejoice over, bleed for, for the, in these last days? The question, though, of what is good and beautiful is not a new question. This is a question that philosophers and religions have been trying to answer for millennia. Many of the Greek philosophers discussed what is good and came up with their own 
responses. Maybe pleasure is, is the highest thing, or maybe a spiritual life or, or the life of the mind. Maybe morality, in some sense, is good. What about political power or physical power? Those bodybuilders, I don't see any in, in the crowd here. Right? What, is, what is the highest good? Is it your mental prowess? Is it your sincerity? Possessions? Your stability in life? So the reality is this. Our, our hearts, I can speak for my heart, my heart is so easily pulled away from what is truly beautiful and good. Can you agree with that? So easily. If that's the reality, then our goal today is to, is to study this story so that we might refocus our ideas of what is good and beautiful and ugly and so that we might pivot and then truly celebrate Christ above all other goods and all other beauties. So turning to Mark 14, I've entitled the, the sermon, A Beautiful Thing. Jesus actually uses these words, depending on your translation, um, a good thing or a beautiful thing in this passage. Let's read it together. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there be an, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them, uh, him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the first section, the first two verses, is kind of a transition piece from the teachings of Jesus that we've read in chapter 13 into a new scene. So Jesus has finished his teaching now, and now he's in a, he's in a new place. And we get this landmark, and it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were two Jewish festivals. The Passover celebrated that when, uh, when they were slaves in Egypt, hundreds of years earlier, God, in his mercy, told the, the people of Israel to kill a lamb and to spread the blood on their doorposts and stay in their house for the night. And any, any door in, in Egypt where they were enslaved uh, that didn't have the blood, the firstborn son would die in that household. In any house that had the blood marking that door, the angel of death would pass over and they would be saved. And they were commanded not to have any yeast or leaven in their homes during this period. And so the Passover and the unleavened bread would start on the same day. Passover would last one night, and unleavened bread lasts the full week. 
So two days before the start of both of these feasts who start, that start on the, on the same day, this is the first mention of Passover in the book of Mark, and the only explicit mentions of Passover are in this chapter. So this is the Passover chapter in Mark. And Jesus, of course, is going to fulfill the Passover by becoming the lamb that would die, not only for the sins of one household, to, so that God would pass over the sins of one household, but that he might pass over the sins of the whole world. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he first saw Jesus. We notice, it says, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So they have not been deterred. This is also not new. This is what they've been doing all along. But what they should be seeking as good Jews during the lead-up to the Passover is leaven in their own homes. This is the tradition. So they, they would go around, the, usually the woman of the house would go around and clean out all the yeast, any kind of uh, sourdough starter, yeast, any kind of biscuits or bread that had any yeast in it at all. They would do a full, what we would call spring cleaning, right? And then it, traditionally, the husband would go with a bag and a feather and a lamp, and he would look all through the house, somewhat symbolically, um, but he would, he would look through the house to see if there's any leaven remaining. And the wife would always leave a little bit of leaven somewhere, and he would find it and use the feather so he doesn't touch it. He would use the feather, sweep it into the bag, and then carry it outside the house. And that's when the Feast of Unleavened Bread can really begin. And so what they should be seeking is leaven. They should be seeking yeast, that thing that God had commanded them to get rid of. And instead, what are they doing? They're not preparing for the Passover. They're seeking, how can we kill the Messiah? Everything is backwards in, in their affections. Um, and they say, in verse 2, not during the feast. Why not during the feast? Is it because the feast is, is sacred and they wouldn't want to desecrate uh, a holy celebration? No, they're afraid because Passover is one of those feasts. There's three feasts in the Jewish year where all, every Israelite man is expected to come to Jerusalem and celebrate there together. So the Passover is a time when people are converging on Jerusalem. The nation's fighting men are going to be there, and they're afraid Jesus is going to stir them up. No matter how he does that, whether the Pharisees kill Jesus and the crowd gets upset, or whether Jesus says to the crowd, now's the time to take over, we can free ourselves from Rome, and a war breaks out, Keep in mind, Passover is when they were delivered from Egypt, that country that oppressed them, right? This is Independence Day. And they're like, he's got to be dead by Independence Day. We cannot allow him to live through this Independence Day um, in Israel. So they've got to get him dead. And it says right here in verse 2, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Nothing about desecrating the feast, nothing about preparing for the feast. They are single-minded. They want him dead. Verse 3. While he was at Bethany, all right. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a reminder again, Jesus likes to hang out with the outcasts, right? He he likes to be at the fringes and hanging out with the people no one else wants to hang out with. It's like saying, and Jesus went to the quarantine camp. Like nobody wants to be near a leper. And Jesus goes straight in there, associates with him. He touches lepers even. He's got no problem with this. 
And, and of course, this is one of the reasons the Pharisees hate him. The scribes can't stand him because he associates with the lowly and the poor. He doesn't meet their expectations of this high and mighty Messiah. But it says he was at Simon's house, and as he was reclining at table, a woman, a woman, an unnamed woman. Who is this woman? Mark doesn't tell us. It's interesting, especially in light of this last statement in this section, that wherever the gospel goes in the world, this story is going to be told in memory of her. In memory of who? The woman. So what, it, what is Mark doing? Why not tell her, tell us his, her name, right? That, wouldn't that be a thing to do when you memorialize somebody, keep their name alive? No, because Mark is razor-focused on you understanding who Jesus is and what he's about to do. There is no distraction here. Mark is like the opposite of the Pharisees. The Pharisees just want Jesus dead, and Mark tells the stories that you just might know Jesus, that you might appreciate him and what he's done. So he stays laser-focused. A woman... It says that she came with an alabaster flask. Uh, I didn't know what that was, an alabaster flask. Maybe I'm just in the wrong generation. But when I hear that, I just go like, a jar? Um, So this is an alabaster flask um, from ancient Cyprus. And as you can see here, there's a, a place for storing liquids. And then there's a long neck. And on top, you can seal it, presumably with some kind of either a cork or wax or something like that, that you can really keep this thing sealed because what you're going to put inside is incredibly precious. You don't want it leaking out, right? It's like a perfume bottle. You don't just leave it open. You want to seal it. It's almost, it's a store of wealth. It's almost like, you know, buying gold or Bitcoin. You want to get that thing, you know, in a nice vault or, or locked away somehow because this thing is, it says it's worth 300 denarii and that is a year's wages, okay, in this, in this. So you can imagine this nard is a, a root from Egypt, uh, sorry, from not Egypt, India. It's an extract from a root from India, and it's crazy expensive, not only to produce, but also to transport. So she has, this woman has a significant store. This is like, this is what she could mortgage her life on, this this thing here. Um, It seems a bit odd to us, but did you know that still in Europe and other places, you you can actually take out a line of credit based on the fact that you own a wheel of cheese? You know how much giant wheels of cheese are worth? It's insane. And they improve their value with age, right? So this woman has invested a year's wages in in an alabaster flask of pure Indian nard. And it says, if in case you didn't understand, um, it says here, very costly. (laughs) So in case you hadn't done the, the, uh, the background work on this passage, it, it translates it for you. This thing is very costly, and that is really an understatement. It says she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Why would you break the flask? Well, you could, if you wanted to use just a little, you could, uh, you could just drill a little hole in here, right? And you could pour out a little bit and just anoint somebody with it, put it on. As a perfume, you would use nard to anoint dead bodies, so you could do that. Why would you break the neck? Because your intention is to give the entire thing. She, right, right from moment one, she doesn't get lost in the moment. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't sort of have an accident and it slips. It says she broke it. She shattered it, more literally, and, and she poured it over his head. So this thing to her... Uh, is one year's wages, and she's just all in. 
these two words, she broke it and she poured it, are going to be used in Mark 14. If you just go down a little bit, and I'm not preaching on this text today, but in verse 22 it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they, drank, they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So these same two words, broken, poured out, are going to be used in the Lord's Supper. You can imagine why Mark might have picked this story. First of all, it's just remarkable that this woman would do such a thing, that the preciousness of, of Christ's presence would be so, so high in her estimation that she'd be willing to blow a year's wages to honor him. And not only that, but that it would be actually the, the, the foundational symbolism of what would happen the very next day in the Lord's Supper. It provides the basis of, for that symbolism. So, do you remember a couple weeks ago, if you were here, or if you listened online, uh, we talked about, actually I preached on this text, the, the widow's offering, just two little copper coins. And Jesus looked at that and he said, she's put in more than all the people who put in out of the, the great things that they had. Out of, out of their abundance, they put in a little. And out of her poverty, she put in everything. She put in her whole life in that, in that offering container. Now, here's a contrast. Here's another woman, again. And this time... She's going to put in, I don't know, what's a year's wages in Canada? She's going to put in a, a good chunk of change here. Is, what is Jesus going to do? So Jesus rejected those rich people who gave big offerings before. What is he going to do this time? Is he going to chide her? Interestingly, in verse 3, we don't have any reason given for her actions. There's, there's no justification provided. It's just a simple act. Uh, what she's done is what's called anointing. It's something you do for kings or for priests when they begin their ministry. And so what she's doing in that culture is declaring him either royalty or a priest or both. And we know that he is both. And so the symbolism carries some weight. It does carry some meaning, but we're not told exactly what she had in mind. But in verse 4, we read that there are some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? So they say to themselves, probably silently or they're sort of muttering in the background, right? What, what in the world? Did you see that? That's a year's wages. Now, these some, Mark's being nice, Matthew's not so nice. In Matthew 26, he says it was the disciples themselves that were muttering between themselves. And it reminds us really of when Jesus said, let the little children come to me, right? There's a group of people, um, a group of children that would love to come and be with Jesus. And the disciples are like, nope, teacher don't have got no time. You go out there, like you're, you're a distraction. You are, you're not, this is not for you. This is for the people who are here to be serious adults and learn. And Jesus says, uh-uh, don't reject anyone. Let them all come. And the disciples, it seems still maybe haven't learned this lesson quite, that Jesus does not tend to reject people who want to come to him. Praise the Lord, right? Um, that he doesn't just look at you and say, ah, no, even though you want to be with me, even though you want to honor me, even though you want to worship, uh, it's, I'm too good for you. He does not say that. The disciples haven't gotten it yet. 
And they say indignantly, why was the ointment wasted? This is a, a statement of economics. This is a statement of value. So the ointment is worth, and they say, a year's wages, 300 denarii. It could have been sold and given to the poor. So what they've just set up is a proposition. So if, if you want to worship Jesus and you spend a year's wages, it would have been better to take that and to, to meet the needs of people who don't have enough, right? Which I think a lot of us would be thinking the same thing, right? This, like, we don't just burn cash up here on stage every morning to honor Jesus. Like, you know, there's better things we could do with our money. And most of us would agree. So what's going on? How is Jesus going to handle this accusation that this makes no economic sense? This makes no kingdom sense. We could have fed the poor. In verse 5, it says, uh, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And it says, and they scolded her. What do you think that was like for her? This woman shows up and honors Christ in this massive and beautiful way. And the people who've been walking with Jesus for years, they scold her, probably with these same words. What are you doing? What a waste. What a poor decision. And that must have been a, a tense moment and a heartbreaking moment in the, in the heart of this woman. Can you imagine? Did I really just spend a year's wages and displease the Lord, displease his people? Have I done a foolish thing? But Jesus said in verse 6, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Jesus saw her distress. She wasn't just like, yeah, whatever. He could see. This is distressing. This poor lady. And then he gives his own evaluation. She has done a beautiful thing to me. A good thing. And then he gives a reason. So this is Jesus' math. Rather than, uh, you know, a year's wages could feed how many mouths? He says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. This is true. The poor will always be around. In spite of our utopian dreams, we're never going to actually beat poverty. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about poverty. But it means that as long as there's fallen, sinful humans making their own rebellious decisions in this world, and until Jesus comes back, you're going to have poor, you're going to have starvation, you're going to have disease. And Jesus says, this is the reality of the world. And not only that, it's an opportunity. This phrase, uh, the poor will always be with you, is actually a reference to Deuteronomy 15.11. Deuteronomy 15 the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon just before he dies to the generation of Israelites whose parents refused to go in the land. And these are the children now who get another opportunity to go into the promised land, to fight giants, to trust in the Lord and claim their inheritance. It says in 1511, There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So Jesus is quoting from a passage that actually commands care for the poor. Jesus is not anti-poor. Go back to Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, If you, uh, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. 
So Jesus has just commanded somebody just a few chapters earlier, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, what makes that command different than this command? Why would Jesus not in this situation say, you should have sold what you have and give it to the poor? The disciples, they've been paying attention. So even though they've missed Jesus' heart on this completely, they know that he just instructed somebody, if you've got a lot of stuff, sell it and give it to the poor. Here's a woman doing the opposite, and they're like, we know, we understand. The poor are important, right, Jesus? And Jesus says, yes, but. Yes, but. Because what links these two stories is that that man was clinging to his worldly possessions in Mark 10. And it says, actually, he refused to do it. He went away sorrowful. Jesus was calling for his whole heart. Yes, he cares for the poor. But what Jesus was calling for in Mark 10 is abandon everything, follow me. Make me your highest good. Make me the thing that you prize more than anything. Set aside everything else. Do good while you do so, but make me number one. That's exactly what this woman has demonstrated, and that's what the disciples missed. They missed that this woman was doing exactly what was commanded of the man in Mark 10, even though the, the actions were opposite, not giving it to the poor, right? Her heart was exactly what Jesus was calling for in Mark 10. So, Jesus is concerned not only for the physically poor, but also for the spiritually poor. In fact, that's what this whole Passion Week is leading up to, is that you and I, we stand before him utterly impoverished, nothing in our hands. Even my best deeds, there's a mixture of selfishness and, and pride mixed into my very best deeds. I have nothing to offer. And I'm, I'm condemned for eternity because I've offended and rebelled against a holy God. And Jesus steps in and makes himself poor. God himself takes on flesh, becomes a man, lays humanity alongside his divinity, and comes emptying himself even to the point of death on a cross so that he might lavish on us riches that we didn't deserve. So Jesus cares very much for the poor, not only for the physically, but also for the eternally poor, for those who stand condemned and in need. He says, you will not always have me. This is, a, this is a direct reference to the fact that he's about to die. I'm about to die. She's, she knows she has a limited amount of time. And then he says, she has done what she could. Or more literally in the Greek, she has done what she had. She has given everything she had. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So not only does he say, by the way, you're not going to see me soon. You're going to have no opportunity to anoint my head with oil. She's, she's prophesied, knowingly or unknowingly. Like, like I said, we don't know what motivated her actions. We were not told. In verse 3, it didn't say, and, the, and a prophet came, a prophetess. It didn't say, and she came in order to signify. No. She just poured out her love and devotion to Jesus, and in so doing, pointed everyone in the room, in a very aromatic way, um, to his coming death. This is, after all, nard, and it's used to anoint dead bodies, among other things. It's a precious, precious perfume. And he says, this is a prophecy. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. <clears throat> when do you splurge all your cash? When do you clean out your bank account in life? When are you willing to buy a gift that's a little too pricey? Well, when you have a, maybe a new grandchild or a child, right? 
redo the house, bring a gift. When you get married, when there's a stock market rush, right? And when you die, you don't spare any expense at the funeral, if, if you can afford to do that. You don't, you don't try to budget and skimp. You try to honor somebody's death. There are certain moments in life that are a big deal. And this woman looks at Jesus and says, he's a big deal. This thing that I've been saving, this thing that is, is my life savings probably in this jar, he's the one to spend it on. This is bigger than death. This is bigger than new life. He's the one. And so Jesus resets their definition of what is good and what is beautiful. What is ultimately good and beautiful? Christ. If you really understand him, you really know him, and you see what he's done, that's, that means everything. I stood condemned, and you took my place. You had everything you wanted in heaven, and you became poor and suffered and died and was, were scorned and mocked and misunderstood, even to this day. You would take all that just to save a sinner like me who brings you nothing in return except for my gratitude. That would be something to trade your whole life for. He says, I, just, I say to you, whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So that's part of my job this morning. Let's remember her. She did a wonderful thing. I don't even know her name. At least not in Mark. Uh, <laughs> maybe in some other gospels we get a hint. But that's not the important part. The important part is this, is, this woman not only has done a beautiful thing, she's also done something that's linked directly to the gospel. Did you catch that? She has pictured the gospel. Jesus' body broken and poured out, the most precious thing this earth has ever seen, for you, for me. So wherever the gospel goes, this picture of a woman who gave up everything, broke it, poured it out, points us ultimately to that same gospel. It's a beautiful picture. Now, an ugly thing. We have another transition statement. And, and rather than just viewing it as the next part of the story, I think we'd be wise to view it as an extension or a contrast of the story we just read. In the story we just read, money was no object compared to Christ. Let's have a look at Judas. It says in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Again, we're not told the motivation just to betray. What does he get out of it? We might infer some of his motivation. When they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. So he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas is running the math in reverse. Hey, you know what? If I, could, if I could compromise, if I could turn this guy in, I could get some cash out of the deal. Sell Jesus for cash? Yeah, that sounds like a good deal, right? I, I, could, I could be better off than if I just had Jesus and no cash. And, and what he's misunderstood, of course, is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You could have everything in the world and not have Jesus and have nothing. This is dramatically illustrated um, in Matthew 27. Mark doesn't give us this story. But what happened? So did Judas, you know, invest in, uh, 
the TSX or whatever before it was cool, and now he, he's doing really well for himself? Did he go and buy himself a yacht or a vineyard? Maybe he was able to raise his family so that his children each had three changes of clothes. No. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 3. It says, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. He didn't even want the money. He realized what he lost. He said, I don't need this money. I just want my Lord back. And they said, too late. And he actually killed himself. Man, what a lesson. What a lesson for our hearts. You remember at the beginning, we all acknowledged our hearts are so easily distracted, so easily led to esteem things other than Christ, and that our goal is to reset our affections. This is part of it. Not only a good example of this woman, but a warning. The destruction, the utter ruin when you put your hope on something else. So what is our proper response? In 1 Peter 1.18, we read, We were not redeemed with perishable things. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then he continues in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once uh, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's your story. That's my story. That's everyone's story. That's where we start as humans, linked to Adam in his transgression, destined for hell, God's righteous and just punishment. And then he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the opportunity that you have this morning to make that your story. Maybe you're walking with Christ. I don't know. But that's what you can do. You can move from death and condemnation to life and eternal happiness because of him. What is that worth to you? What is the highest good and the highest pleasure and the greatest delight you've experienced in your life? Everything else begins to pale in comparison. Is there anything or anyone more deserving of your adoration than him? Is there any cause you consider more worthy than your worship of him? In the... uh, In the conclusion here, we need to look at this issue of idolatry. The New City Catechism is a, uh, just a little booklet that has a question and answer 
format through basic issues of doctrine and theology. And it's a, a wonderful refresher. If you're afraid of the word catechism, don't be. Um, it is basically just a question-answer teaching format. And you can get kids' songs that are based on it. It's a wonderful refresher uh, for just the basics of the gospel and theology. Question 15. The question is, what is idolatry? And the answer is, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. That is really what's at stake here. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. So our heart, uh, if I may use an analogy, is like a compass. If you've ever used a compass, you realize if there's a metal object nearby, right? you've got a big belt buckle or a big bowie knife or something in your belt while you're bushwhacking it through the bush, you're carrying your gun a little too close to that compass, um, or in an adventure race that I was once on, a guy had a metal clip for a drinking straw on his backpack, and we were off by like two degrees the entire time. We were always a few hundred meters off of our target. We were like bushwhacking it through the bush, and finally we figured out, it's your backpack, it's constantly pulling in the, uh, to the left. So we're always, we come to the point, we look around, there's nothing here that should be here, and we start doing spirals around to try to figure out where we're supposed to be. Once we figured that out, we could remove that metal piece, and we're set. So your heart is like this as well. There's a lot of things in life that are going to come, big metal objects, big shiny objects, and they're going to call your heart. It might be a little or it might be a lot, but what it does is it's idolatry. These things are going to take the place of Jesus as your highest affection, your highest love. They're going to cause you to look at his upcoming death and be more like the scribes than this woman. That's where you, that's, that sin of idolatry wants to take you. I'd rather have Jesus dead. I'd rather have the cash. So what can we do? Well, we need to make Jesus our true north. We need to make sure we remove all these things. Now, taking care of the poor is great. Money is not bad. But we need to make sure those things do not drag us to the side and miss our Lord. As a, a story in closing, I'm sure you've heard, um, and if not, um, you can check it out later. There's a pastor by the names of, name of James Coates in Edmonton, Alberta. You've probably heard of him. He's in jail right now in solitary confinement because he opened his church. And he refused to agree to bail conditions that said, you cannot pastor your church. And so he sits in jail voluntarily, we could say, because he could agree to those conditions and be released. But he sits in solitary confinement. He was arrested Tuesday. And I saw an interview with him, uh, and I also read something that his wife wrote. And in closing, I'd like this to challenge our hearts, because make Jesus your true north is very abstract. What does it look like? When Jesus is your true north, when he is your greatest good and greatest uh, beautiful thing in your life. So James says, we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We are required, commanded to gather to worship him with one voice, one mind. And so we are committed to honoring and glorifying him. And the reporter asks, and you're prepared to, I guess, go to jail? And James said, absolutely, I am resolved to obey Christ and believe that every aspect of my theology requires this of me. Not just obedience to Christ in terms of what he requires of me as a shepherd, but even the command to love my neighbor as myself demands this. So yes, by God's grace, I am prepared and resolved to go to jail for hosting a gathering for the body of Christ here at Grace Life. 
What is jail when you have Christ? That's what that looks like. So he's been in jail since Tuesday. And his wife, Erin, posted on, on Instagram, Thank you for your kindness in our darkest hour. My heart is shattered. Alabaster flask, yet rejoicing. Shattered yet rejoicing. We knew this could be the cost, and I would do it a thousand times over for our King and the hearts entrusted to us at Grace Life Church. The courthouse and the officers were the ones who would not tell us where he was. The inhumanity of my husband in chains, while I could not find or get to him, broke me. To think he stood alone while we were trying to get to him was almost too much for me until I remembered the one who loves him more than I ever could was standing with him. I must trust James's life to him. He is only good to us. Man, that just breaks my heart. But in the, you know, the hero of this story is not James or Aaron. It's the one that they treasure above everything. Jesus is the hero of their story. Jesus is their only good. If they have Jesus, they only have good. No matter solitary confinement, it's a beautiful thing. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this example of this woman whose name we don't even know. I thank you that, that you have broken and poured out your body for us. You are our greatest treasure. You are our only hope of reward. And Lord, just as we think in the past of this woman, view yourself at the cross of, of those like Richard Wormbrand or James Coates. Lord, be the hero of our hearts. Help, help us to reset our compasses this morning to true north. Lord, in our weakness when we forget, would you come and remind us? Would you bring a story, a scripture, a thought that you might restore your rightful place in our hearts as number one? And that may all other competitors fall away. In Jesus' name, amen.